Hello, and welcome to the Business Success Show. I'm your host, Kim Davis, and during this podcast series, I'll be interviewing the leaders of the world's most iconic brands to discover the secrets to their success. Plus, I'll be sharing with you tips and ideas on how you can apply these lessons to your own life and work. So come with me as your next business success lesson starts now. First and foremost, thank you so much for joining me today, Renee. I... Look, it's a privilege and a pleasure, and I'm, I've been really looking forward to this. Awesome, fantastic. Um, I want to introduce you to my audience. Um, we're going to be talking to Renee Cariel today, who is one of the world's leading uh, executive coaches. He's worked with some of the biggest CEOs of the biggest companies, Fortune 500 companies, FTSE 100 companies. Uh, he's also the author of the amazing book, uh, Spike, and he's one of my good friends, and I'm very proud to say. <laughs> so welcome again, Renee. Pleasure, 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 pleasure. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> um, I want to start off by reminding you when we first met, um, the first thing you did was you said, <laughs> you've got that look on your face that says, uh-oh, what's coming up? <laughs> what did I do? I said, <laughs> exactly. No, it was all good. We sat down, we met in the, um, a hotel lobby uh, or cafe, and you sat me down and you asked me, Kim, what is your story? Tell me your story. And uh, I'd like to flip that onto you today and say, Renee, why don't we start with, can you tell listeners your story, please? I've got a very straightforward story, Kimberly. Um, my parents came from Gambia, West Africa in the early 1960s to London. Gambia was a British colony. And like many of the immigrants of that, age, of that age, my parents were middle class, dad was a diplomat, mum would never have worked in her life if they stayed in Gambia. But Gambia only had primary and secondary education. We didn't have tertiary, no colleges, no universities. They decided they wanted their children to get degrees and they'd all go back to Gambia and live happily ever after. They sold up everything, came to London, but despite the fact they were middle class, that total, only gave them access to not the best housing, which meant not the best education, which meant life was gonna to be tough. I was lucky enough to get to university. I got my degree and I ended up at Marks and Spencer. And as far as my mum and dad were concerned, job done. Got him a good job, time for us to go back to Gambia. They went. My brothers and sisters, we're Brits by then, we're Londons, we stayed. I did 10 years at Marks and Spencer's, which was one of the best businesses in the UK at the time. It was the largest retailer in Europe at the time. Then the phone rang, and it's Pepsi. And Pepsi are looking for a board director. I just knew they'd have got the wrong person. It wasn't going to be me. Imposter syndrome was alive and kicking. But I managed to convince myself I was going to go for the interviews. I didn't know what a board director did. So at least what I'd get out of the interview was learning what a board director did. Now, I wasn't, I was a merchandiser at Marks and Spencer's. I wasn't the best. I was quite good at my job. I'd done a few departments, but I was stunned that Pepsi came in for me. I traveled to purchase New York and as life would have it, they gave me the job. I'm now a board director of the ultimate challenger brand. And I was later to find out from the chief executive that 
I was absolutely what they were looking for, a challenger. I hadn't realized I'd spent my career as a challenger. Mm. I didn't look like my colleagues. I didn't go to the Ivy League University. I didn't go to the public school. I was forever fighting for attention, desperate for recognition, and wanting to pay back my parents for the sacrifices they'd made. So I was prepared to wake up a little earlier, run a little faster, jump a little higher, but desperate for that recognition. What was Pepsi? Challenger brand. Run a little faster, jump a little higher, and son of immigrants was precisely what they wanted. And Amazing. I thrived over three years. Came back to the UK, went onto the board of IPC magazines. We had 100 magazines at the time that we were nicknamed the Ministry of Magazines. We had Country Life loaded, Marie Claire. We had so many goodies. And when I joined, I couldn't believe that we were so steady, slow, bureaucratic. And at a particular board meeting, I raised, why can't we do a management buyout? A year later, we raised 860 million pounds, 10 of us on the board. And we bought, did a management buyout, bought the business. Three and a half years later, sold it to AOL Time Warner for 1.1 billion. Nice. And I retired, went home, retired. And how Two young were you at this I was point? Booted out. Oh. <laughs> Two weeks later, I was booted out, no good at home. And I started the life I'm on now the accidental coach. And I was lucky enough to meet some great leaders, coaching them, sharing them what I learned. Pepsi taught me everything about leadership, nothing about management. Martin Spencer taught me everything about management, nothing about leadership. Put the two of them together, you got an accidental coach. Amazing. And this all happened, you were quite young when all of this happened. Your, your career really blossomed at a young age. Um, that's amazing. T tell me a little bit about that. Was that, I mean, you talked about imposter syndrome. So was that intimidating for you? What was that like? And I'm sure youngest, that you were- Youngest black board director in the UK. Amazing. Even though I wasn't here, I was over in, in Pepsi. But it was all accidental. It, there wasn't a plan. But what I learned, and, it's, and I suppose it's something we're talking about today, is I had two or three spikes, gifts, things I was really good at. They are not things, not applied learning, not physics, chemistry, geography, it, nothing like that, but things that you're born with. Mm. Every one of us is brilliant at something. No one is brilliant at everything. If we can find out the something that we're brilliant at, it might just be the accelerator for our career. Absolutely. And what I found quite early on was that every appraisal I ever had, there was only three things I was any good at. I was rubbish at so many things, but it was three things that I was really good at. He could do the big picture, he could communicate a bit, and he was by far the most passionate on the team. So what I decided to do, the only roles I was ever going to apply for, I was ever going to try and win, were those that needed those three things. I spent the last 21 years doing three things only, the big picture, communicate a bit, really passionate about it, and I surround myself with a team who do all the things I'm rubbish at. I never have a bad day. I just amazing. don't have bad days. No, that's that's fantastic. That's amazing. And that's why I wrote Spike, the strengths-based leadership. I was just going to ask you about that. So tell us. So this is your book, Spike. It's actually yes. your second book, isn't it? Um, third. Third. My apologies. Um, so 
tell us a little bit about space because I love the idea about behind this. I love the idea of how finding the thing that you're really good at and sticking with that instead of there's so many companies who try to force us to to learn things that we're not good at, right? So tell me a little bit more about Spike. So I think Spike leads to strengths-based revolution. You know, whenever, whenever we, we were, were appraisable, when I first started, they'd talk about your strengths and your weaknesses. Then it became your strengths, your areas for improvement, then your areas for development. Today, we call them limitations. Your strengths and your limitations. And every company used to be obsessed with your limitations. And if you're rubbish at something, no matter how hard you work at it, you're probably going to get adequate. You might even get average. Who wants to be average? I don't want to be average. I wanted to be Olympian standard at two or three things. And someone else in the team can look after the things I'm not so good at. Fantastic. So the philosophy works, but it, it means the lens of those who recruit change from our current obsession with the best person for the job to the best person for the team. Have a lens for the team. And then that gives all of us a chance. It's not some ephemeral CV that needs, it's what are you brilliant at? And can I catch you doing things right? Can I create a position for you? We are just gonna do the things you're fantastic at. And you know, we've got this virtual spike circle that the things I tend to enjoy are the things I tend to be really good at. The things I tend to be really good at are things I tend to enjoy. So therefore, do a job that you love, you never work a day in your life. Absolutely. And I'm surrounded with a team who are really good at all the things I'm rubbish at. So I know the first thing is, I need a couple of people who are more cautious than I am. They're going to be quite risk averse, quite process driven, mm -hmm. and they're going to challenge me that I don't, when someone says, don't dive in the water, there are crocodiles. Well, I've missed that there are crocodile stuff splashed in already. So I need them to say there are crocodiles first before they say don't dive in the water. Mm. We all need people who are different from us on our team. So we practice diversity and inclusion. Yes, absolutely. And that leads us into the conversation about diversity and inclusion, because that is the key to what you've been talking about, I know, especially for the past year. Um, but even before that, I know that's been a hot topic that you've been very passionate about. So this year has been extremely, uh, I think diversity and inclusion has come to the forefront of not just individuals' minds, but corporate minds as well. And it's become certainly the hot topic. So how have you found that the corporate world has, you know, and the business world has changed on this topic over the past year? It's a great and insightful question, Kimberly. Um, if someone had said to me 20 years, 30 years ago, there'll come a day when business will be driving inclusion better than government, better than the public sector, better than academia. In fact, better than anyone else. They will be the trailblazers. They will be the game changers. They will be the role models. I'd have laughed in your face. <laughs> yep. I'd have split my sides laughing. Mm. But that is where we are today. And it's not just in terms of inclusion, climate change, sustainability, race. We have a generation that will not be denied. They're more assertive, they're more joined up. 
they are more tech savvy, they're better educated, they're better traveled, mm. they collaborate better, they're beyond faith, they're beyond race, they're beyond... If we hadn't had the pandemic, I'd have said they're the luckiest generation alive, they're going to live to 100 years of age, they've got no smallpox, they've got no polio, they've got, you know, we've got the cure for HIV AIDS, this is the, the generation. But you know what? Most of all, they're joined up. They see the planet through a different lens. They see climate through a different lens. They want to know what the people who make their fashionable clothing are paid. They want to know mm. about one-off use of plastic. They want to know that we're caring about the oceans. They care about marginalization. They care about those who are less privileged. And you know what? They're assertive, they're prepared to voice their opinions. So if I take you back a year ago, March 25th last year, we saw the nine minutes, 29 seconds on, on, in our lounges, on our laptops, on our iPhones, horrifying. Two days later, my WhatsApp started to buzz like you've never heard before. All the calls were white, middle-aged, middle-class men that I admire. People that I'd coached, chairman and chief executives, they had one question. Rene, we want to lead a conversation around race in our business. I don't know where to start. I don't know what to say. I'm scared of saying the wrong thing. Mm. I've not really practiced race before. Am I credible? How do I really lead this when I've got no people of color in my senior teams? help i was doing these 15 minute coaching sessions which went something like this no one's going to be perfect park your fear be brave if you're bold you might fail if you're not bold you will fail start somewhere don't try and be perfect apologize when you get things wrong the only mistake is the one you don't learn from enough theory it's a bit like swimming jump in the pool you're going to get wet you're going to get a belly full of water but don't worry there may be some allies around they'll ensure that you learn how to swim a couple of months later, every single one of them have had the initial conversation. I'm pleased to say a year later, every one of them has moved the dial. They've progressed way beyond. Are any of them perfect? No. No. But at least the conversations are being had. The conversations, the actions, the changes. But you know what happens? Because of how cynical us Brits are. Yeah, yeah, but you're just talking about it, aren't you? Yeah, 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 but where's the action? Yeah, 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 it's whitewashed. Yeah, 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 you're ticking boxes. No, this is a time to park the cynicism and get involved. Get behind it. And what we're seeing is my biggest challenge, and what I see is the biggest challenge is everyone wants to dive into actions when they haven't really won the hearts and minds yet. Mm. They haven't really understood what it's like to walk in the shoes of someone who's so different from them. When they haven't really realised what it's like to be marginalised when they don't really know what it's like not to have a voice, when they don't really know that I can't work from home. I'm a frontline worker. I need to work every single day. Yeah. You know, and believe you me, I don't have choices. And no, it's, and I don't trust taking the vaccine because I don't know anything about it and no one's really educating me. They don't know that what that's like. Mm. They don't, and I, I'm spending a lot of time trying to win hearts and minds before we dive into action plans, KPIs, holding people to account, which are empty vessels because you haven't really changed your mindset. You don't feel any differently. You don't really know what it's like to feel excluded. You don't know what it's like 
that your voice is never heard and you're invisible every day at work? If I can get you to better understand that, and we can, then we change our world. How do you communicate something like that? How do you help people who have never experienced um, that kind of exclusion and the, that kind of invisibility? How do you help people who've never experienced that to empathize with it, to maybe understand it more and to shift the dial? So there are two things. One is experiences, the reverse mentoring, the spend time with people who aren't like you, listen and learn from people who aren't like you. Mm -hmm. But you know me, Kimberly, stories, stories, stories. Stories, of course. Until the lions have their own storytellers, the tales of the hunt will always favor the hunter. Tell the stories of the small people. I've got a story for you. Tell me. So, oh, I do so, love one of a very good Renee story. Go on. So this is, I'm with Microsoft. Ralph Houser is a president of Microsoft EMEA. He'd done everything. He'd been chief executive of Germany, chief executive of China, president of Asia. He's now president of EMEA. He is the third or fourth most powerful person within the organization. He's only heading one way. He's tracking upwards. He's been there 19 years. I'm doing a big inclusion session for him and his 50 direct reports, five zero direct reports. Each one is a country manager of Emir, from Israel to Egypt to Germany to Austria to UK. I spend an hour with him and his team, winning them over, preparing them for the session I'm going to do. The following day, I get a call from Ralph's office saying he wants to spend 15 minutes with me. Something I said the day before really moved him. He just had to check in. We spend two hours. And Ralph tells me the following story. Mm. He said, given what I'd said to him about walking in other people's shoes, seeing the world from those who are less privileged, and with all of his privileges, he said he went home and he was talking to his wife about some of the things I'd said. And he's got four really good friends of mixed heritage. They grew up in Germany, all near a small town near Dusseldorf, and there was an American airbase. And these four guys, their fathers were African-American airmen with servicemen who worked out of the airbase. Mm -hmm. They married German women and stayed on in Germany. Okay. And their sons, they all went to school together. And he said, given what I said about, are you sure every voice is heard? Are you creating an environment of psychological, psychological safety where every voice is just heard, but it's valued? but it's embraced. And he said, when he spoke to his wife, these four mixed race men of mixed heritage, he'd never heard them argue. They'd never been in a fight. They never raised their hands to ask a question at school. Mm. They never challenged. They went to university together. They'd been to each other's weddings. So in all this time, he'd never heard them raise their voices. Mm. And she said, that's so true. So he rung one of them. And he said, I've never heard you in an argument, never heard you raise your voice. Why is this? And he said, don't you remember? There were five of us. He said, when we were at school, when we were 12, one of the other mixed heritage boys whose father was an African-American serviceman, he had a fight at school and he got beaten up badly by a gang. Mm. And his father came to school the next day to complain. That night, their house was firebombed and they were all killed. Oh, my God. So our fathers pulled us aside that you will not argue. You will not fight. You will wow. not raise your hands. He said, 
it made him realize he'd never walked in the shoes of someone who was different. He hadn't even noticed that they never raised their hands or raised their voices. Welcome to the world of inclusion. Amazing. And it's through those stories yeah. of sharing each other's experience, our lived experiences, walking in each other's shoes and realizing those of us who are privileged. And it's not that we should be made to feel guilty or ashamed to be privileged. It's how can we use that privilege to help those who are less privileged? Yes. Yes. And I think, Kimberly, we can change this. Mm. And it's changing at a pace. But we inspire people to change. It's through optimism we're going to change the world. It's not through negativity and despondency. It's mm. optimism. And I, yeah. you've heard me say this, nothing is best done alone. We need Absolutely. to do this together. And to me, when I'm coaching all my people inclusion, it's look out for each other, look after each other, look out for each other, look after each other. Mm. You and I have had some really great and insightful conversations around, well, a lot of different topics, but uh, I want to focus today on some of the topics that we've had about race. Now, you and I know one another, and I feel very comfortable around you, and I know I can ask you anything, and I appreciate that very much. What would you say to people? Can I say who, something else first, Kim? Yes. It's really important about our relationship. Yes. And this, we have to be able to have uncomfortable conversations around race. Yes. We have to. And I think what I love about you is you're not afraid to ask it. And I think if you're not afraid to ask it, I cannot be afraid to answer it. Oh, that's very sweet. That's great because here's the question. I've got two hard questions for you now. Please. <laughs> um, Please. I, want, I want to ask you first and foremost, for people who are, it doesn't even have to be black and white, right? It can be to somebody who's Asian, uh, who's, who's just, just different cultures, whatever it may be. But what do you say to people who want to embrace that, who want to ask questions, but are scared? They're worried that they're, they're going to be insulting. They're worried that they're going to say the wrong thing. They're worried that uh, they're going to be labeled somehow as racist, because I know a lot of people are worried about that these days. So what do you say? How do you start the conversation? And how do you do it in a way that makes you both feel open to the to that conversation? So I don't know if you remember the first time you and I talked about race. You said to me, um, Brent, I hope you don't mind. Um, I hope this doesn't offend you. you kept asking, just, just ask me, will you? Just ask me. <laughs> just but, spit it out. <laughs> I think the thing is, if you take a moment to say, I'm sensitive to your sensitivities, then you've asked permission to be rubbish. And we have to start somewhere. And I think we can, language is important, but intent is vital. Absolutely. And I think sometimes people are clumsy. I think what I say to Absolutely. everyone is, we have to speak up, speak out. Do not be afraid to be assertive and correct, but do it with forgiveness. Because that becomes then a learning opportunity, an educational opportunity. I had the other day, my 82-year-old neighbor who has no more next of kin, 
She's as grumpy. She could, she's, she could be grumpy for England. She's the grumpiest person I know. <laughs> and over the last nine months, me or my son or my daughter, every morning, we tap her glass door just to ensure she's okay. She comes, no acknowledgement, never opens the door, and just grumps at us. Mm. I know she's, I know she's okay. I dread the day when I tap the glass, and she doesn't. And she's, she doesn't remember she's given me a key. Oh, okay. But if it doesn't happen, I'm going to open the key and call the. I'll do whatever's necessary. Yeah. But it's important. Her language is atrocious. She'll talk about me and my kids as the coloured people next door. And I'll have to say to her, Michelle, black. Of course, of course, Renny. Next day, the coloured people next door. I'll say, Michelle, black. She's never going to remember and I'm never going to stop correcting her. Mm. And we may have to dance around that table forever. But you know what? I love her to pieces but I'm not going to stop correcting you. And yeah, absolutely. But I think what's really interesting about that story and about you is this point that you make about the intention behind the words, right? Not everybody's a great communicator. Not everybody's great at articulating their thoughts and their feelings. And some people aren't even in tune and don't even know what exactly that they're feeling. Um, so it's great that you have this ability and, and that a lot of people have this ability to think beyond that and think, well, what is really the intention? We all need to. Are they trying? Is, she, is your neighbor trying to insult you? I don't think she's trying to but, insult you, know, you. I think, so there are people, all of us have different risk appetites, risk quotients and tolerances. Mm. And my son, all of this washes over him. My daughter is a little bit more coiled spring. Mm. don't go there mm. do not go there because she's coming at you she's coming for you okay <laughs> both are correct yeah no one has the right to insult me out of their ignorance no educate yourself but what i'm saying to i say to my daughter you deserve the right to tell them off once but do it with forgiveness because if they're worth their while they will have learned yeah and we've helped them yeah but, you know, I, I just wonder sometimes that um, some people, we get the, yeah, but all lives matter. You know, we still get that. And I'm still going to, it's going to raise my head because I'm going to challenge you. Yeah. And I'm, How does it and make I'm, you feel when people say that to you? When people well, correct you? Correct you. you know, and I, so one of the, I told you about, I was um, coaching these chairmen. Mm. One of them, one of my favorite guys, he called me up and he said to me, um, we had a terrible dinner last night. It was the day after the tragic murder of George Floyd. So we had a terrible dinner last night. He said, um, my daughter's not speaking to me. Mm. My wife slept in another bedroom and my son's packing his things to leave the house. I said, what did you do? Mm. He said, I was arguing that all lives matter. I said, right. And we had the conversation. Mm. And what did you say? So I gave him the old analogy that, you know, um, if we look at all races, of course, all lives matter. Mm -hmm. But in recent times, there is a particular race 
in most Western developed societies, there's more marginalized than others. And if we look at ethnicity pay gaps, we look at the jobs they do, we look at their life expectancy, we look at their healthcare, we look at everything, they are the bottom of the pack. Mm. And if we can practice inclusion, a rising tide floats all boats. But imagine you're living on a road where each house is a different race. As we speak today, the house that represents the black race is on fire. We all need to get together and put that fire out, otherwise all the other houses will catch fire as well. Mm. Next year, it might be a different house, but today it's the black house. And I need your support and I need your help. What did he say? You haven't. His son didn't leave. Great. He went back and he apologized. But he learned. Yeah. And you know, we all, all of us, none of us are perfect. Let's remember that. No. We all deserve the right to be educated. Absolutely. And what I really like about that story too, is the fact that there's that willingness to learn, which I think a lot of people have, but a a lot of people don't think other people they're talking to does have it. They assume they don't and that they're, they're blocked instead of opening the conversation up and realizing if we, we listen to one another, if we learn from one another, if we're willing to adapt. Think the best of each other. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but you know what? Despair is easier than hope. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit harder. It's a bit yeah. harder, but we, we deserve. So I, I've, I've learned the hard way. Yeah. We're not going to do this on our own. The bit that surprised me most was I'm working all these businesses, all doing great things, is the biggest gap is generations, not race, not gender, not sexuality, not disability. The biggest dissonance is, gender, is generations. There's a generation that just gets this. Yeah. And there's a generation, unfortunately, my generation, those are my vintage. We're stuck. Yeah. We're hurt. We're despondent. We're angry. We're divided. And nowhere does this play out more for us than Harry and Meghan. Yes, absolutely. What you, did you just think need of that? to look at that debacle. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I wonder. I just wonder mm. how different would it have been if the House of Windsor, our royal family, which we're all proud of had tried inclusion. I wonder if they just thought, do you know what, Megan's a little different. Instead of asking her to march in line and fit in and become one of us, she might just reflect the subjects that we serve. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could accommodate her, embrace her, value her, celebrate her as we did at her wedding? And do you know what? We've got a bit of form here from Lord Snowden, from Mark Phillips, from Sarah Ferguson, Princess Diana. How many more failures do we need before we try inclusion? Mm. What do you think that the, the, the royal family could have done different? How, how could they, if they had taken on that mentality that you've just explained, how could they have changed and adapted and what would you advise them to do to include Megan and make her seem really um, included in the family? No different to all the businesses I'm working with. So every time we work with a business, we meet what I call the incumbency. Though the incumbents who are in authority or in power of being there, when we go to Microsoft, it's the engineers. If I go to Laura, it's the senior women. 
But usually, it's your white men. And what I hear from them all the time is, we're being positively discriminated against. We're being left out. All the benefits for everyone else, you're diminishing us. Mm. And I'll say there's nothing positive about discrimination. We're not practicing any of that. But we are practicing an even playing field. We are going to look for talent in different places, and it's going to be a meritocracy. There's room for all of you, all of us. And what we're going to do is include you even more. Your voice is valid. Your views are valid. I want you to be part of it. Will you climb inside the tent? But, you know, get comfortable with everyone else being, being different to you. Spend some time with people who are very different to you. What a great learning opportunity. How about a little bit of reverse mentoring? How about you spending some time in someone else's home? How about royal family coming out and instead of just doing a 30-minute handshake, spend the day and the night? One of the come and spend that... some time with people who are so different than you. Yeah. I think one of the things that I found the most interesting about the Oprah interview with Harry and Meghan is that Harry came out and said, I've always known about racism. I knew all these things existed, but I didn't experience it firsthand until I experienced it through Megan's eyes. And I thought that was very powerful. It, it kind of got overlooked with all the other news that kind of came around it, I think. But I thought, wow, to, to be someone who has always been involved in charities and things and, 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 uh, had those conversations before and been very much a public figure who was expected to be leading the way on those things, but not really actually having that thing that allowed him to really empathize and relate properly. And then all of a sudden now having it, it's given him complete perspective, a new, completely new perspective and changed the course of his and his family's life. Kimberly, you know this, Yana in my team, Yana's Russian. Mm. Yana's been in London for nine years. Mm. And you know, as I always say, that New York, I love New York. It's a cosmopolitan city of America. But yeah, London is a cosmopolitan city of the world. You know, it's just... So Yana comes to London. Mm. She joins our team three years ago. And she tells me a story. She's made no friends in London. And I mm. say, how can that be? How can that be? We brought Yana into our team. We've embraced her. And we started to go around with Yana, I'd travel with her, we'd see, and we saw that it was quite tough for her to be included. Mm. You know, we found that Yana has, proud of her Russian profile, Russian accent, Russian mindset, and Russian approach to things. It brings something beautiful to our team. She sees things a little differently. It's a powerful insight into things and a different way of looking at things that's been very powerful for us. What we realized though, in so many of the traditional places in London, she was invisible. She was an outsider. She was classified as Eastern European mm. and bracketed beneath us. Mm. And in a, in a number of occasions, I've had to stand up for Yana. And we had a moment Yana's had a young, young daughter mm -hmm. and Yana's been trying to get her into a nursery. And every time she phones up, she sees there's a vacancy. She rings up and then she's told there's no vacancy. Mm. So I rung up for her. 
I got the vacancy. Mm. I don't sound Russian. No. It just, that, it hurt all of us. Yeah. But in a way, it's the story of inclusion. Yeah. We have a lot of work to do. Absolutely. But I'm confident we're going to do it, Kimberly. There's a generation here yes. that I'm so proud of. I'm yes. so pleased with. For every story of failure, I can tell you, I can tell you another hundred stories of success. Which is fantastic. I'm glad that you're out there doing this and, you know, flying the flag. And <laughs> but we have to call it. And, and Jim, mm -hmm. and I know that I've changed. There was a time when I wouldn't call it. I'd feel it was career limiting. I'd feel I'd be labeled difficult. Yeah. Now I'm of the vintage now. I feel it's my responsibility to call it. I have to be intentional. I have to be assertive. And I'm not afraid. Have you had, this is a very personal question here, but I would be really curious to know about your experiences with firsthand with racism and people who have done something similar to you. Six months ago. Experienced or whatever. Six months ago. You know, we're in Maribyrn. I'm walking up Maribyrn High Street. And I smell this whiff of freshly made chocolate. You know, it's just intoxicating. Mm -hmm. And I find myself following my nose to a brand new chocolate shop on Maribyrn High Street. I walk in and there's a woman behind the counter. She doesn't even acknowledge my existence. Mm. But I don't care. I can smell great chocolate. Great. There's a young man behind the second counter. He comes out and says, excuse me, sir, can I help you? Right behind me walks in a young white couple holding hands, very much in love. Mm. And they're coming in. And the woman who had ignored me jumped from behind the counter, starts talking to him, and she goes behind the counter. She pulls out a tray of freshly made exotic chocolates. And she gives it to him. I'm speaking to this guy, and he goes behind the counter, and he pulls out a tray, exactly the same, and she looks at him, and she says, no way. Mm. And I say to her, I beg your pardon, out loud. He ignores her, comes to me, and shows me the tray. The couple had seen this, and they stopped taking the chocolates. And he said, I don't want anything from you. And she wow. said, that was a disgrace. And they walked out. Wow. Amazing. The young guy serving me, I was tempted to walk out, but I didn't. I bought a far more chocolates than I intended to. Because I wanted him to know that he'd done the right thing. Mm. He'd looked after me. As I was leaving, I went up to her and I said to her, I will never come back to this shop again. Now, 10 years ago, I might not have said anything. Mm. 10 years ago, the young couple might not have said anything. 10 years ago, he might not have served me in the way. 10 years ago, I wouldn't have bought as much chocolate. But I wanted her to feel, here's some feedback, here's the gift of feedback for you, and here's the gift of feedback for you. That was six months ago. Yeah. But I think now I've left them a lesson. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I had you, some allies. Yeah. Do you think that it would have been the same experience without those allies? I think I might have been a little rougher. <laughs> Look out. <laughs> I think I might have been. I know where your daughter gets it from yeah, now. <laughs> I might have been giving them a little <laughs> bit more direct feedback. Yeah. 
Do you think there's been progress? Do you think everything that happened with George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and all the things that have happened this year, as horrific as they were, do you think that they are, you know, I saw uh, President Biden said to um, George Floyd's daughter bent down, he said he bent down to talk to her and she said, you know, my daddy's changed the world. Do you think it has changed the world or you think this is just a temporary thing and then we're right back to where we were? Do you think the younger generations coming up are really going to, you know, in a week, 40 within years a week, from now, it's going to be a Within seven story. days of George Floyd's death, there were 80 Black Lives Matter marches in 80 different countries. We've never seen that before. Mm. Embarrassingly, only one country had an anti-Black Lives Matter march, the UK. Mm. But I was having this chat a couple of weeks ago with some of my friends, um, black friends. And I was saying to them, seismic changes, tectonic plates changes in terms of race. I, I would never believe this. Hmm. And they were arguing with me. And I suppose I have a particular framework and lens. I'm spending my time in the boardrooms and the C-suites of UK PLC and Fortune 500. Big multinationals. Mm. I said to you before, I've never been busier. Before you, I was doing HSBC. I did Chief Executive Noel Quint. I'm doing inclusion for him and his 215,000 people. Mm. They could not be taking it more seriously. A little clumsy, but really, really taking it seriously. Mm. Before that, the hour before that, I was with the top team at City Fiber, the third broadband service in the UK couldn't electrify younger, took on a thousand people in the last 12 months. They've never been in the same buildings together. They're all working in different places. I did an hour's Q&A on race. Mm. Last week, and maybe this is the most telling of the lot, we've got a little exercise we do, a little breakout in a workshop, where we say to the audience, Give me, we call it rose and thorn. The rose is, give me an incident in the last three months around race that really impressed you. The thorn is, give me an incident around race in the last three months that's really depressed you. Mm. Personalize them, business or at home. We had 250 people in the audience. We're doing this on, on Zoom. 90%, and they had to put their stories in chats. 90% of the positive experiences were to do with younger people. Yeah, doesn't yeah. surprise you. No, doesn't surprise me. 90% of the frustration ones were to do with older people. We have work to do, Kimberly. We have work to do. And I think when I look at the reporting of Meghan and Harry, it reflects that. Mm. All our royal correspondents stuck in a different age. All of our tabloids stuck in a different age. You go onto social media and the younger platforms, you'll see the amazing support for Meghan and Harry. Mm. You look to old media, we're, we're in the empire. It is, I have found that very interesting, the very stark difference between how the UK portray Harry and Meghan versus how the rest of the world and especially America. Now, to be fair, America probably doesn't know the ins and the outs and haven't hasn't seen them in the headlines for years and years and years. So we just, I keep telling people, 
America is all about taking Brits in <laughs> who are unhappy with Britain. But you know what? You're, you're sort of making a great point, though. Right. Because the, the thing is, it's accept everyone. Yeah. And I think because we want to categorize, we want to put people in boxes and pigeonholes, inclusion is, I don't give a who you are. Mm. I'm going to include you. Yeah. There's something refreshing about that. But I think there's something deeply, deeply worrying that because, and it's not just Megan, let's be clear, Diana got the same treatment. Yeah, yeah. Sarah Ferguson, you know, she got the same treatment, Duchess yeah. of York. Yeah. And Princess Margaret's consort, Earl Snowden, got the same treatment. Mm. Princess Anne's first husband, Mark Phillips, got the same, this form here. Don't tell me it's about Megan. If your family is so bloody dysfunctional, try a bit of inclusion. <laughs> try a bit of inclusion. It's it tastes wonderful. <laughs> yeah, just have, have a little bit. Every you know what? Just try it for a moment. See if it works. Yeah. yeah. And I, I and I've used them, but I use lots of examples. So we put a picture up of the England football team that's going to be chosen for the up and coming Europe European Championships. Mm -hmm. And now when he picks a squad, when he picks a team, the team is going to have five, six, seven, or eight black players. And you're going to think diversity in action. What you're not going to say is inclusion. Because you know what's going to happen tragically? Mm. If England lose, the black players are going to be slaughtered on social media. Mm. Nothing said of the white players. So we're good at diversity. Yeah. So as we say, diversity is a fact. Inclusion is a choice. I like that. Yeah. Diversity, Diversity is, is and inclusion is the choice. choice. I like it. I like that. And I think the royal family did diversity, but wasn't prepared to do inclusion. That's an excellent point. Excellent point. Um, before we go, I want to have a, a quick conversation with you about COVID, which is really the the, the center of uh, this conversation and why I've put together this th these chats. Um, I want to talk to you about what, beyond just what's been happening in the news for the past year, I want to talk to you about how COVID has affected you, has affected your business, um, and how that's all changed. You know, it's, it's certainly changed the world for everybody in different kind of ways and different levels. So let's start off, I want to start off by asking you, where were you? I, I found that there's a moment where we went from, oh, there's this thing out in, this, in the world, there's a bug out in the world, to, oh, God. The world is definitely going to change. Did you have that aha moment? And what was it? So I sort of, my second home was Heathrow Airport. Terminal 5, Heathrow Airport. Mm. Three times a week, I'm at Terminal 5, Heathrow. When I was told, no more, Terminal 5, Heathrow, a day before I was due to fly out to South Africa. Mm. And I thought, Okay, so it's been postponed for a day or two. Then, <laughs> in the same day, no large gatherings. The second part of my business, I travel three times a week and I go to large gatherings. No large gatherings. Right. Hmm. This could be a little bit dicey now, so I can't travel and no large gatherings. Then social distancing, just to finish the whole thing off. When you're down, let's really finish this off. Mm. So for someone whose life is spent coaching intimately, speaking to large audiences, 
and traveling around the world, this came thudding to a halt. Mm. But you know what? We sat down, we thought about it, and we had to reimagine. And how did you reimagine it? How did you, what are the changes that you made in your business to adapt to this? Because it sounds to me like everything and every, every way in which you do things was completely taken off the table. So how do you, sit, you know, where do you even start when you sit down? To, zoom, to zoom, 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 save the day. Zoom, zoom, zoom came flying in. Is it the same as you as coaching in person? No. Is it the same as doing a talk in person? No. Could we reach more people? Yes. Could we do more simultaneous work? Yes. Could we charge as much? No. Mm. What are we going to have to do? Reimagine, repurpose the whole business. Mm. So we changed, we pivoted, we looked to do it differently. We retained some loyalty with existing clients. We changed the format of what we did. Yes, we can coach online. Yes, we can do talks online. Yes, we need to make them in. If I look back at what we were doing in March and April of last year, I'm embarrassed. It was so poor. It was so bad. Mm. How so? Now, I soon had to, to realise I'm competing with Netflix. If they're this little square and for the same amount of time, I need to be more compelling than Netflix. So it, we went from talking heads, being a newscaster, to actually saying, you know what, bite-sized chunks, smaller, more compelling, more interactive, more activities, more of a performance, connect in a different way, send some stuff out earlier, do some more Q&A, break it into smaller chunks. Fantastic. I can, now I could do things that I would never have dreamt of before. So I've got, this morning, I had HSBC, an audience in Hong Kong, some of them were in the UK, some of them in India, and partway through I dialed into the group chief executive. We couldn't have done all of that before. No. He popped in for 10 minutes and disappeared. Mm. It's worth a million dollars. So now we're part of the impossible. Yeah. How do we to I've got to tell you this bit in your life. So I did an event, a webinar for the Chicago Bulls, Chicago Blackhawks, Chicago Bears, Chicago Fire. Excellent. Inclusion. Inclusion. I did it the day after the verdict. Mm. What was that like? What was they the feeling in the room? That must have been a very different feeling. Session. They had a big debate on, do we down tools and let all of our workforce experience the verdict? But because they're all big sports franchises with big security operations, the majority of their security officers were ex-police officers, they decided not to. I had a huge argument with them. And by the chair of the event, who's the dean of my business school, White, 70, and me, we had the argument. And they were all, our colleagues, were all jaws on the table watching a black guy and a white guy. I didn't realize what the fuss was about. And we went for it, as right. we do. Right. As we do. And I was saying to him, they've made the assumption that police officers aren't human. Why are they assuming that all of them agree with Derek Chauvin? I don't think they are. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're part of society. They should have down tools. When we, when we finished and he'd sort of conceded, they thought, 
What will you do when we have an argument? Well, America today, a black guy and a white guy having an argument is, is quite challenging, sadly. Mm. Mm. For us here, it's an everyday, well, for me, it's an everyday occurrence. <laughs> and, um, and, but what was interesting, they said, we've had feedback from our colleagues saying that they wanted to watch the verdict together. It was that important for America. Yeah. So before we finished, we're helping them dictating notes for them. So what you need to do is go and apologize to your colleagues and you'll get it right next time. But the message I was giving you, I said this to you before, who would have thought us in Britain going out to mighty America mm. to give them some help with inclusion? I think, that, I think the world has changed. I do think as much as it's changed, there's definitely different levels of people getting it right and wrong and, you know. The, Everywhere. And we yeah. still, in terms of, I, I wonder though, I wonder though that the bit, I, I'm doing more and more work in America and I love working with them because the art of the possible, nothing's mm -hmm. impossible. You know, nothing's mm -hmm. impossible. Then. But yeah. the divides. I've never seen America so divided. I agree. It's very sad. It's, I find it very hard to watch. I watch the news every day. I'm all on top of it all. And I have to say, as an American living abroad, it's like- I but, but I have to say for all of that, and it, it, you know, sometimes, and this is what I feel with inclusion here is we needed to hit the bottom to bounce back up again. Mm. And I've got a feeling America's bouncing back up again. I hope so. Yeah, I definitely hope so. But, you know, I'm that optimist. Me too. Me too. So- Talking a little bit more, one last uh, question about COVID and then a couple of fun questions, I think, for you to, to end on a happy note. Um, I just am curious about mental health because that's a big hot topic these days with COVID as well. So how has COVID affected your mental health? Has it been business as usual? I know you've had a very busy year and things have gone really well, but have you found this past year challenging from, from a mental health perspective? Personally, no, but I've looked at some of my team. Yeah. I've looked at some of my family. I've looked at my kids. Um, and I think, especially from the black community, mm. I think what COVID has, has helped us do is talk about it. Yes. <clears throat> and talk about it in, in an informed way and in a caring way. And I think whereas before it was one of the unspoken truths, I think what's, what's happened at the moment now is um, we're inquiring. Anxiety depression, loneliness, isolation. Um, so so one, in the very early days, there's about six of us, we used to play football together for many years on a big WhatsApp group. WhatsApp group. Back in March, April, we lost 10 of them. Mm. They were frontline workers. Eight of them were bus drivers. And in the early days, you, people just kept coming into the buses and they're sitting right in front of it, yeah. in the front line. And what we learned was many of them were ethnic minorities. Mm. They couldn't take days off. No. They can't afford to financially. And there was, and it took three months before they moved passengers to coming through the middle doors. In that three months, we lost eight of our colleagues. I'm so sorry. And what it did for the group, as we realized that we needed to look after each other. And to have loss in that level of multiple, we all grew up together. 
it and I realized then that we need, and we weren't able to visit, we weren't able to put our arms around people, we weren't able to, but mm. we found ourselves calling each other on a regular basis. It brought you guys closer together. Yes, because you were thinking, who's next? Yeah. And we hadn't, it took some time before we realized it's because they were bus drivers. Right. Because as you grow older, you don't even know what each other does. You just yeah. remain friends. Right. When, and it was when we found out that they're all bus drivers, it's sort of, it's, it's a hard truth. Oh, I'm really sorry. Gosh. Yeah, it's, it's, this year has been horrific. And these stories that you hear are, are certainly horrific. Um, so there's been a lot of negativity. But like you said, there's been a lot of positivity. Been a, a lot, too. I think with, I, the bit that I think that people that don't know each other, we've lived in the same locale for ages, and we've, we've been neighbours. Or hmm. So my, my, my greatest one is my Michelle next door, my old complaining neighbour. He's moaning the other day about our postman was coming later and later and later. Mm. And I came down and she was down there. And she said, look, he's, he's late again. And I said, Peter, and Michelle tells me you're coming later and later. He said, I am a bit looking down at you. She said, why? So well, it's Roger, 88. Um, Roger's getting on a bit. He's losing his eyesight. So now I don't just drop his mail. I sit down and read his mail to him. Oh, wow. And I thought, do you know what? That's a wonderful little moment. Yeah. And out of all the toughness we have, out of the pandemic, found, look out for each other, look out for each other. Oh my God, that's really hit me hard. Like, you're going to make me cry, Renee. Renee, you're going to make me cry. <laughs> but it's just the beautiful touch of kindness. Yeah, yeah, that is amazing. I have to say, in, in my development too, I've gotten, I've been locked away for the best part of a year in my flat. And my neighbors, we, you know, through the technology, through WhatsApp groups and all the rest, we have managed to connect. And it's like, we've got, a, my front door has become a little portal of where we do baking and I leave some baking goods and then tell them and they come and collect it. Then they leave oh, me fabulous. baking goods. And it's, oh, it's just with people I've never even seen their faces before um, connecting and, and reaching out and helping to support one another. It's been just amazing. Um, right, final questions, fun questions for you. Have you picked up any new hobbies in the past year? Um, Through your lockdown time? Have you started oh, oh, baking? Oh, oh. <laughs> We're going to no. see on the Great British Bake Off. Cooking. Cooking, cooking? is, well, I, I, I used to cook years ago, but I've never had the time. Right. Now I've got the time and it's cooking again. And it is, and I mean, extravagant cooking. As well. Oh, really? Okay, well, where's my invite, Renee? Yeah. <laughs> I'm working on it, of course. <laughs> no, but it's great now because it's therapeutic. Yeah. You can expand and all, all of a sudden as well, my daughter starts to grow herbs and spices in the garden. So we're, Excellent. oh, it's lovely. It's, it's cooking and reading have come back. What's your specialty? Italian. So Sicilian, in fact, Sicilian. Fantastic. And, uh, and what have you been reading? You said you've been reading. What's, what's your favorite book? If you were going to recommend a book to anybody. So I, I did The Catcher in the Rye again. Excellent. I haven't read it for God. I've been reading American classics. There are some, f Hemingway. I mean, got back into it. There were some fantastic, the old classics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Old American, and, and, you know, Steinbeck, really down into the old American classics and fabulous writing. Mm. Fantastic. 
Um, and final questions, it has to do with uh, Zoom meetings. And we all know there's been plenty of people who have been caught getting up, not realizing their camera's still on and doing some embarrassing things, kids, dogs, whatever else coming through. I'd like to know, uh, have you had any embarrassing Zoom moments? Cat. <laughs> What's the My cat, cat our cat at home, my daughter's cat, loves men. Okay. <laughs> but as soon as she hears any men and they're on Zoom, she comes flying and then realizes no one in there. But she'll walk right across the screen, round around, and oh. she'll disappear, realizing it's just me. Here's the voice of men again. And so there was a time when I used to sort of think, get up. I don't know. I think Zoom etiquette is that everything goes now. <laughs> Every, everything, anything goes. So I'm used to having a very serious coaching conversation with a cat <laughs> and his tailor walking up and down across the front of the screen. And what do you do? Oh, what that's do hilarious. Do? And have you have you been guilty? Be honest now, Renee. Have you been guilty of wearing pajama bottoms during a Zoom meeting? Of course. <laughs> of course. Okay. What percentage? What percentage? Tracksuit bottoms, shorts. I can spend before now we're back in us. I spent months in shorts. <laughs> but you know, now it's really strange, Kim, because tomorrow I've got a meeting with the chairman of some private equity business in Paul Mall, sort of posh London. Mm. I'm not going to wear a suit. I'm not going to wear a, no. a formal shirt. I'm not doing any of that. <laughs> Zoom has changed you forever. <laughs> yeah, nonsense. I'm not doing that. I'm not sure if they're going to let me in, but I couldn't care less. Once you've, once you've got a taste of that comfort level, you can't go back. <laughs> Informality works. It works. It just works. And, and why not? I'm going to include you. It's all about inclusion, and that includes yeah, your course. shorts. Accept me for the way I am in my pajamas. I accept you. I accept you. Renee, thank you so much for joining me look, today. Look, it's, it's been great. Look, I've really appreciated you joining us. And um, what what can we do if we want to get in touch with you? How, how do people who are listening uh, reach yeah, out to you? They'll get me everywhere. It's just reneecarroll.com, but I'm on Instagram. You'll get me on LinkedIn. You'll get me on Facebook. You'll get me on Twitter. You'll get me on YouTube. Wherever you want to get me. You'll get me. You find you. And I'll include you. And he'll include you. I love it. Thank you so much, Renee. My pleasure, Kimberly. Great to talk to you. Great talking to you too. Bye-bye. Thank you.